Let's return to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, where Paul is dealing with the weaker brother. This last week, my wife made some really good lentils. They were, in fact, so good. I woke up and had them for breakfast. Then I came home and had them for lunch. And my son said to me, Dad, are you becoming the weaker brother? I said, no, (laughs) but they really were good. Well, Paul in Romans 14 is instructing us on how to live together in community even when we have differences among ourselves. How do you come together in the church and live together peaceably even when no two Christians have consciences that perfectly align? Very often, Christians glamorize the past, as if all the great saints died long ago. Church history is a record of the hallowed halls of fame where all the perfect Christians lived. To hear some people speak, it's as if church history provides us with little more than the titans of the faith whose legacies are there to just point out how shallow we are by comparison. But Solomon tells us not to view the past this way at all. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. British intellectual Francis Bufford writes, Christianity isn't supposed to be about getting, uh, gathering up the good people. Shiny, happy, squeaky clean and excluding all the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the simple reason that there aren't any good people. He describes the church as, quote, a league of the guilty. I've used that description before. I think it's very appropriate. You may be coming in here this morning thinking, I'm just not good enough to meet with all these Christians. Well, we're a bunch of guilty people. That's who Christians are. We are sinners, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we gather to worship Him for what He's done in our own hearts. It's truly who we are as Christians, sinners saved by grace alone. So we are very, very glad that you're here. If you've never heard the gospel before, we're very, very happy to share that with you because we've all experienced the saving power of the gospel in the life of a sinner. In the 17th century, British Baptist pastor Benjamin Keach described the church, the first Christians, as, quote, being mined from the quarries of paganism. That's a good description. Even the twelve apostles, if you read the Gospels very carefully, were cantankerous leaders given to fits of despondency and even bitter rivalries. While Jesus plotted his way toward a cross in Jerusalem, they argued among themselves over who would be greatest in the kingdom. They kept up that argument right into the upper room. I'm going to be the greatest, not you. Paul and Barnabas had a sharp dispute that just drove that famous missions duo apart. The church fathers were a little better. Jerome had an acerbic personality and quarreled with everyone. He bitterly resented his own failures as a monk. 
Polycarp, a saintly old minister at Smyrna, once visited Rome. And there he disputed with Anicetus, the bishop there, over the proper date of celebrating Easter, of all things. During the Reformation, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli famously argued over the nature of the Lord's Supper at the Colloquy of Marburg. A belligerent Luther left the encounter, refusing to extend the right hand of fellowship to Zwingli. The invention of the automobile in the modern world has actually accelerated disputes between Christians. Most Christians no longer attend churches within walking distances of their homes. Such a thing was actually unheard of for most of church history. Because of the automobile, we can be highly selective in our church choices. If you don't like what happens in one church, just drive down the road to the next church, or drive another five miles, or ten miles, or twenty miles, or like me, thirty-five miles. All right, not because I don't like any churches in Greenville, you understand that, but I talked with a pastor in Greenville sometime back, a large and thriving church in my estimation, and I was shocked when he told me we lose about one-third of our people every year. About one-third of people every year just cycle in and cycle on. That was a real shock. Modern Christians have virtually no conception of how permanently and how drastically the automobile has really shaped the way that we think about church attendance. In other periods of church history, when you had a dispute with someone in the church, you really had two options. Number one, you could just let it fester. Or number two, you could get it resolved. That was about it. Unless you wanted to walk farther to church, which nobody wanted to do. Now, don't, understand, don't misunderstand. There, there are reasons, I understand, to leave churches. I've done it myself. Now, I'm not accusing you if you've left another church, not at all. But I do just want to point out the fact that the New Testament assumes there are, that there will be and there are differences between Christians. And the solution is not to just walk away from brothers and sisters in Christ, but figure out how am I going to get along with this brother? How am I going to get along with this sister? How can we maintain the unity of the body of Christ in the same church as we both attend here? Paul actually says nothing of separation in Romans 14. Rather, he assumes that we're just going to have to figure out a way to make a go of it. Even when no two Christians align in their consciences. Now, thus far, Paul has made three major points. Let's review them. Number one, Paul has said Christians have genuine differences between themselves. That's an unassailable fact. Paul mentions two major differences. Number one, differences over dietary regulations. And number two, differences over how Christians observe special days. And those two are probably more peculiar to first century churches than they are to our own. But today, Christians dispute over music, over dress and Bible translations and entertainment options and all sorts of things. Secondly, Paul has insisted that we are not obligated to defer to quarrelsome people. Paul says in verse 1, receive the weaker brother, but not to quarrel over opinions. And that warning becomes a very important counterbalance moving forward in our passage. 
Because as we go forward, Paul instructs us not to put a stumbling block in front of a brother. So how do you navigate the difference between not offending a weaker brother while at the same time not allowing his strict conscience to hold back the whole church? You've got to figure that out. And thirdly, Paul argued that the weaker brother often has the strongest conscience. This really comes as a surprise. We often assume the brother with a strong set of convictions is automatically the stronger brother, right? Well, in the examples that Paul gives in Romans 14, he's the weaker brother. The brother who has strong convictions against eating meat only going to be a vegetarian, that man is in fact the weaker brother. Now with those three truths in place, let's just continue our work beginning with verse 13 and running straight through the end of the chapter. Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide Never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now in the second half of the chapter, Paul turns his attention to the strong brother and insists that you have no right to destroy the weak. And again, the weak brother is the one with a very strong conscience. In this instance, Paul refers to a brother who has strong convictions against eating certain foods and drinking wine. And curiously, the strong are faced with a dilemma, even a paradox. And it's this. Some foods are both clean and unclean simultaneously. And if you miss that, you will not interpret the passage correctly. 
So let's say it again. Some foods are both clean and unclean simultaneously. Look at verse 14 where Paul gives his personal opinion. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Well, that's Paul's persuasion based on how he understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. But don't neglect the rest of the sentence. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So Paul is equally emphatic. The food is not unclean. The food is unclean. It's the same food. Well, how can that be? Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and let's allow this passage to really be a commentary on Romans chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses the issue of food that has been offered to idols. Can it be eaten? Or should Christians abstain? It's not entirely clear Paul has the same food issue in mind that he does in Romans 14. Many scholars feel that in Romans 14, Paul is dealing with Jews and their strong scruples concerning kosher foods. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is dealing with Gentiles, uh, Gentile converts, and their strong scruples against eating foods that were once offered to idols. These Gentiles had been saved out out of a life of paganism and idolatry, and they just felt they need to just disassociate themselves entirely with that whole culture. But either way, the outcome is the same. In both cases, whether Jews who observe certain dietary regulations or former Gentile pagans who wouldn't eat meat given to idols, in both cases, you end up with Christian converts in churches who refuse to eat certain foods. So let's take up our reading with verse 1. And I'll try to get through this quickly with minimal comments. Verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up or makes us proud, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Paul identifies the central issue in verse 1. Can a Christian eat meat that has been offered to an idol? Apparently, there was a division in the Corinthian church over this issue. And some prided themselves on their knowledge of the gospel and their freedom to eat. And they were not loving God appropriately. So keep reading verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. We know this. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things 
and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All right now, Paul was emphatic. Idols are fake. We know this. They have no real existence. There is one true God, the Holy Trinity of the Bible. All other gods, aside from the Christian God, are literally non-existent. Now, people worship these false gods, but they're fake. They have no real existence at all. An idol carved in the wood is no more a living God than this table down here or this pulpit. It's a piece of wood. If someone decided to offer me to this table as a God, I would say, well, he's crazy. And certainly the meat would not be contaminated. Well, that much is clear enough. But keep reading. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, as if this idol was a real God. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So clearly there are converts in Corinth who even though they had come to Christ, they still struggle with idols. Having been taught for so long that idols were real, even believers, even Christians come to associate those idols perhaps with demonism, paganism, and false spirits. They did not really regard them as fake So when Paul says, not all possess this knowledge in verse 7, what's the knowledge? He's referring to the knowledge that we have in verse 4, an idol has no real existence. Not all have this knowledge. They're not thinking this way yet. This idol has no real existence at all. It's a piece of wood. Not thinking clearly about that yet. So if you were to take food that has been offered in a temple to an idol or food that had been prepared in a pagan sacrifice for the gods, and then bring that food into the church, you're going to have believers whose conscience just erupt. I can't touch that. So what do we do with this? Well, the answer comes in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat And no better off if we do. In other words, God is not impressed because you do eat the meat. And God is not impressed because you don't eat the meat. God is not saying, well, one is more holy than the other. Neither the person who eats nor the person who abstains can claim the higher moral ground. Now, this is especially important for those of us who can freely eat the meat. The exhortation really is to them. You are no more spiritual because you are not the weaker brother. God is not impressed with you flaunting your liberty and saying, look at me, I'm eating this meat. God's not impressed with you. We are no worse off if we do or if we don't. Food will not commend us to God. So, where do we go from here then? Well, keep reading. Verse 9. 
But take care that this right of yours, the right to eat meat, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, the knowledge that these idols are fake, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And notice this, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And Paul does not hold back. The believer with liberty to eat is in the greater danger of sinning. You think you're strong? Beware lest you fall. And what's the sin? The sin is deliberately wounding the weaker brother's conscience. And let's be very clear about this. The sin is not merely a sin against the weaker brother. It is a sin against Christ. Did you see that in verse 12? When you sin against your brother, you, friend, are sinning against Christ. Christ went to the cross for that brother. Christ shed his blood in horrible agony for that brother that he might be redeemed. The least, the least that you can do is forego a piece of meat. It's no big deal. Sure, you have liberty to eat the meat. No problem. But is your liberty more important than transgressing the conscience of a person for whom Christ gave his life? The contrast here really is significant. Christ shed his own blood. And you can't give up a piece of meat? I had a conversation some time ago with a friend. He's part of another church. He's a believer, of course. And he was telling me at their church, they have a lot of Christians that just really celebrate their liberty to drink alcohol so long as they don't get drunk. My friend, who doesn't personally have a conviction against alcohol, told me that he was very, very disturbed because Christians were just making such a big deal about it. They're bragging about it. They, con- they talk constantly at church about going and having a drink. And they assume this kind of attitude of condescension toward any brother who refused to drink. And he was just relating to me how he was just disturbed by this sort of snobbish contempt in the church over Christian, over, over anyone who had a conviction against alcohol. Well, friends, if that's you, you are trampling the conscience of a brother or sister who has a conviction against alcohol, then you are sinning. You are, in fact, sinning, and you are sinning grievously. You are sinning against Christ when you trample another believer's conscience. Paul says you are destroying, that's a very strong term, you are destroying the brother for whom Christ gave his life. Now, while we're here in 1 Corinthians 8, just notice this. This is somewhat of a tangent. But Paul strongly implies 
that a brother who eats against his own conscience is in fact sinning. And I probably need to come back and really develop that at some point. But Paul says it is not inherently wrong to eat meat. But in fact, it is wrong to eat meat when your conscience says you shouldn't. And in verse 9, when you pressure someone to violate his conscience, he stumbles. The implication is that he stumbles into sin. In other words, to violate your conscience is sinful. No two people have the same conscience, but the Lord gives us that conscience, and to violate your conscience is, in fact, sinful. Now, as I said last time, sometimes you have to come along and recalibrate that conscience. There may be things that your conscience would not allow you to do at one point in your life, and that would, in fact, be sinful, but later on, you have the complete liberty to do so. All right? Sometimes you have to recalibrate your conscience against the Word of God. But be very, very careful, friends, about just going out and sinning against your conscience. Paul implies that that is stumbling. Be very careful about that. Now, let's take all this commentary and go back to Romans chapter 14. And let's recover our central dilemma. Here it is. Here is the paradox. Some foods are both clean and unclean simultaneously. The same food. And how can that be? Well, 1 Corinthians 8 made it really clear. The meat is clean. No problem, eat the meat. But the meat is unclean if your conscience won't allow you to eat it. Eating would be stumbling. So then, how does the stronger brother approach the weaker brother whose conscience will not allow him to eat? Paul says the same thing in Romans 14 that he said back in 1 Corinthians 8. In verse 13, don't put a stumbling block in the way of your brother. You might say it this way, don't flaunt your liberty. Be very, very careful about how your actions will affect brothers and sisters in the church. Friends, there are things that I can do in complete liberty But I know of Christians whose consciences cannot allow them to do the same. And so I simply abstain from those things when I'm around them. And I actually, just this morning, was thinking through this. I thought of an example, a live example right here in the church. I thought, I can't even mention that because I might actually be provoking someone to go against their conscience if they realize I can do it. Now you're wondering what that was. Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, here's an example. My wife and I have been in settings in different churches that are really, really strict about clothing. You would, in fact, never see a woman wear pants in these churches. Well, should my wife just walk in and just flaunt her liberty and wear pants and try to make a statement for everybody? No, just not a big deal. You visit one of those churches, just appreciate the culture there. I know of churches that are offended by having a guitar up on the platform. We've got a guitar right here. I know of churches that just this is, this, this is offensive to people. Well, if I'm invited to speak there, I'll just leave my guitar at home. I don't actually have a guitar, so it'll be easy. What's that? Don't sing either. <laughs> I won't sing either. Okay. Oh, tambourine. I'll bring my tambourine and drum. There we go. All right. <laughs> Notice in verse 15... Now, Paul uses the strong term destroy. 
It's the same term that he used back in 1 Corinthians 8. Christ commanded us to walk in love and not destroy a brother's faith. Paul states emphatically in verse 15 that you are not walking in love when you're flaunting your liberty. In the end, Christianity is not about my personal liberty to eat meat or drink wine. If that's your understanding of the faith, then your faith is still immature. You may think that you are wise and discerning, but in fact, you're not. You're actually a spoiled Christian who obsesses over your liberties while failing to appreciate what really, truly matters. And what really, truly matters? Verse 17, righteousness. That's what matters. Peace. That matters. Joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit-filled life that produces the fruit of the Spirit. That's what matters. Now observe also the verb that Paul uses in verse 19, pursue. Paul does not speak of pursuing my personal liberties. Rather, Paul speaks of actively, aggressively seeking out opportunities to create peace between brothers. Pursuing those things which build up the church rather than tear it down. And now in verses 20 through 23, Paul comes back and really just reiterates what he has said so far. But notice a couple things. Back in verse 15, Paul referred to destroying the individual for whom Christ died. And in verse 20, he refers to, quote, destroying the work of God. And friends, those truths are simultaneously true. To destroy the individual is actually to destroy the work of God in that individual. That's where God is working. Think of that. To destroy the individual, friend, you are destroying the work of God. Think of it this way. Here's God's Spirit, and He's just laboring away at this new creation, this new believer, maybe an older believer. God's Spirit is just really working on him. And you come along and just destroy the work of the Spirit because you want to flaunt your liberty? How dare you do that? How dare you defy the Spirit that way? It's not merely a matter of asserting my liberty. It's a matter of wreaking havoc on the handiwork of the Creator. That's the issue. All right, now I probably have raised a couple questions. And I want to answer them. First of all, does Paul say that we should all defer to the weaker brother's conscience to the point that we all end up with identical practices? I mean, if you follow the logic all the way through, it seems like you would come out there. We just keep deferring and deferring and deferring and deferring to the point that we also have this conscience that looks exactly like the weakest brother in the room. All right? So, for example, if one brother in the church doesn't eat meat... Well, then does that mean that every last one of us just gives up meat? We never touch it again. I mean, is that how far we go with this? How many had that question, right? It's in your mind? Okay, maybe, maybe. Okay, very good. Well, such an approach would quickly lead to absurdity. 
What if we had one brother who said, my conscience won't let me eat meat? Another who said, my conscience won't let me eat vegetables. Another who said, my conscience won't let me eat bread. Well, if we deferred everyone, we'd end up quite dead. You couldn't eat anything. My kids are saying, just have dessert, Dad, right? Okay, no. What if one person said, you know, I don't, I don't believe in guitars. I just, I just, it really, really bothers me. Somebody else says, well, you know, I don't believe in pianos. Somebody else says, I, you know, I don't like a cappella singing. Because in the Bible, at Psalms, you had instruments. Well, what are you supposed to do? Not sing anything? Again, you can follow the logic all the way through and end up in a very absurd position where you couldn't do anything. You couldn't eat and you couldn't worship. So, how do we navigate through all this? We should, in fact, defer to each other, but don't push it too far. And I have to be very careful in saying this. But notice what Paul writes in verses 21 and 22. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's true. The faith that you have... Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now, what Paul means at the end of verse 22 is simply this. It's a wonderful blessing if your conscience doesn't judge you for eating meat. Okay? It's wonderful. But in contrast with verse 23, notice this. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. That's the man whose conscience does not condemn him. But again, in verse 22, Paul celebrates the blessings of a person who can go and eat meat. So, if that's you, don't hold back. Go have a steak. Even if it's been offered to an idol, well, don't let God's good creation go to waste. Just go enjoy your meat. No problem, all right? But notice also the first half of verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Right, Paul seems to be saying here, if your faith allows you to go eat, great. Just go do it. Just keep it between yourself and God. In other words, don't make a big deal about this. Don't flaunt your liberty. Eat your meat to the glory of God. But don't go around the weaker brother and, you know, have your beef jerky or whatever it is. All right? just, just keep it between yourself and God. So let's just think it's really, really practical. Okay? We have no convictions in our own home against eating meat. I have no problem going to a restaurant and eating meat. doesn't bother me in the least. But if I'm going to invite over for dinner to our house, a brother recently saved out of Buddhism, and he's been a lifelong vegetarian, as many Buddhists are, and his conscience just won't let him eat meat, well, what do I do? I don't eat meat. Lentils are good. Just don't eat meat. I, I, can, I can forgo meat for a night. For the sake of my brother, it's not a big deal. Paul does not tell us that we have to adjust all of our convictions to fit the weaker brother so that we all live with the conscience of the weaker brother everywhere we go. All right? But we do have to be careful we don't push our convictions onto that brother and cause him to stumble. Now, here's the second question. 
How do we strike the right balance between not offending a brother with a weaker conscience while at the same time not allowing the church, the whole church, to be held back by the conscience of a weaker brother? I think that's the harder one, isn't it? The example that I just gave is not too difficult because it's what happens in your home, right? I mean, they're not going to eat dinner at your house indefinitely, all right? But what about a public gathering of a church? Should we never have meat at a church fellowship, even if one brother has a conviction against meat? All right, now, once this COVID thing is over, we're, we're going to have to have some sort of like major, major dinner and feast and make up for a year's worth of lost food. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, good Baptists know how to eat. and We haven't been doing it. But so next time we do this, whenever that is, all right, can we just bring in the meat? We have one. <laughs> Seriously. Have you guys missed these Easter? I mean, Easter meal and Christmas meal and Thanksgiving meal and Chinese New Year. And I just, man, I've really, really missed all that. So we'll just, I don't know. Everybody go get vaccinated and we'll just do it. All right. <laughs> then you have people with different consciences about vaccinations too. Okay, there we go. I don't know. All right. <laughs> Where was I? I lost my place in my notes here. What are we supposed to do? Again, this could quickly dissolve into absurdity. You understand that? One person says, I don't believe in meat. One person says, I don't believe in vegetables. One person says, I don't believe in um, bread. I mean, what are you supposed to do? In other words, how do you navigate at, at the corporate level with the whole church body? Well, did you notice that our chapter has a tension built in? Paul said in verse 1, welcome the weaker brother, but not to quarrel over opinions. All right? Now, in today's passage, we're supposed to forgo our liberty for the sake of the weaker brother. But at the same time, welcome the weaker brother, but not to quarrel over opinions. So does the passage pull you in two different directions? See? It does me. It pulls me in different directions, like, how am I supposed to navigate this? So, where do I go from here? Well, let me just, let me just, this, it's just me sharing my thoughts. Maybe somebody can do better with this. I don't know. First of all, I don't pretend to have an exact answer to fit every situation, right? There's wisdom that is always required in every church setting to navigate these issues, and you just need the Lord's Spirit to really guide you. There are tensions in the Christian life, and just navigating constantly is a matter of wisdom. But having said that, here are just a few thoughts. First of all, when it comes to the church at large, the whole corporate body, my personal default, and I think I probably speak on behalf of the elders, is to protect the overall ministry of the entire church. Romans 14.1, in my estimation, just sort of sets the tone for the whole passage and for the whole church. Don't let the weaker brothers become quarrelsome and just hold back the ministry. All right, so in the past, we've had this Easter celebration. You know, we invite the internationals to come. We have a meal together. We have an Easter service and celebrate the resurrection. Then we all go to the fellowship hall and have a, a good time eating together. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. I don't know if we're going to be able to do that this year, but let's say there's one brother who says, look, I don't believe in having meat. And you say, no, wait a minute. This is, this is an outreach ministry of the church. And if, if it bothers you, why don't you just go home and eat? We're not going to hold back the whole ministry of the church. 
right? We're not going to hold back our outreach because one person's conscience just kind of flares up. We've got to be very careful about that. Again, I don't think that you would really make any progress if you try to cater to everyone's particular scruples. The New Testament, it seems to me, consistently emphasizes the unity of the body and the advancement of Christ's work over the individual conscience of one person or even two. So, for instance, we have never, to the best of my knowledge, set any kind of policy here or taken a position based on the conscience of one person. We don't do that, myself included. If one person says, I don't like the guitar, well, I'm I'm sorry, we happen to use a guitar here. If one person says, I don't like the music projected on the screen back there, okay, no problem, but we're going to do that here because that's what we've been doing. If one person says, I, you know, I believe that every church should have a policy that ladies in the youth group wear pants, don't wear pants, well, we don't have that policy here. I'm sorry. I mentioned last week, and nobody asked me about this, and I'm glad actually, that I, I, I have a particular view about something. How many, how, many, how many were curious about that last week when I said, okay, I, know, I, I knew I was going to get you curious. I have a particular view about something that our church does, and they were doing it before I got here, and it's like, it's always kind of bothered me, and I've never told you what it is. I'm not going to tell you what it is. My wife knows what it is, but don't, and you know, ever since I've been here, I've promoted it. That's why you don't know what it is. I've promoted it. I've gotten behind it. I've pushed it really, really hard. I'm not even sure I believe in it, right? Because apparently the church corporately didn't have this conviction when I showed up. So I'm not going to bring my scruples in here and say, look, you've got to do it my way. I'm just one person. All right, now I know I got you really curious. Someday I'll tell you. We all get the glory and you'll say, you were wrong. It's okay. I will say this also. We do try to emphasize in the membership process that any potential member really needs, just take some time and acquaint yourself with the ministry of the church and how we do things here. And if there's something we do here that is just really highly offensive, it really may be best for you to find a different church. I mean, there's other good churches in the area. I got an email from an individual that liked our church, and he said, look, I, you know, I like the ministry there. I'm going to listen to all your sermons online, but I just, I can't, I can't, I can't attend there because I have a couple of scruples about something. He sent me a very kind email. I said, that's fine. No problem. So, as a rule, we default to verse 1. At least I do. I default to verse 1. And we don't allow the whole church to be ruled by the conscience of one brother. If they've come to quarrel, well, then maybe UBC really isn't the best fit for them. So, again, that's how we operate on a corporate level. But secondly, on an individual level, my default tends in the direction of the end of the chapter. So corporate level, beginning of the chapter, individual level, end of the chapter, where in my personal interactions I have to make conscientious efforts to really not trample people's convictions who are different than my own. In my one-on-one relationships with people, right, I really, really try to protect that person's conscience. Does that make sense, I hope? When we're dealing with an issue that affects the whole church body, well, verse 1, all right? If you're the only person in here with a conviction about something, okay, my answer to you is going to be verse 1, all right? Don't let the weaker brother become quarrelsome. However, when we're talking about my individual relationships with other Christians on a personal level, well, then verse 21, I can't make my brother stumble, all right? That's my approach, 
And then thirdly, I'll just say this and I'll be done. Let's just make sure that we understand the difference between a preference and a conviction. Saying that I don't like a particular song, well, that's a preference. Is that really the same thing as saying I have a Holy Spirit-inspired conviction against that song? The Spirit told me that was wrong. Well, be very careful about that. One might say, I don't like guitar music. I prefer older songs. I don't care for percussion. Well, that's good. But the truth is, we cannot, and we've never even tried, to cater to everyone's preferences. If we tried that, it would be a total disaster. You understand that? If we tried to meet all your preferences... I mean, my, my family, if we say, where do you want, where do you want to go to eat? Right? You've got five opinions right there. Boom. Five opinions. Right? A whole family gets together, you got... Everybody's got a different preference. I mean, you can't. You just cannot cater to everyone's preferences. So be very, very careful about making a distinction between your preferences and what really, truly are your convictions. All right? And we may all need to just really assess ourselves on this level. And let's not accuse someone of causing me to stumble simply because he or she violated my preferences. All right, well, let me just thank the church for your attention to Romans 14. Romans 15 is really going to continue the same theme, so we'll continue next week with this. But uh, I have, um, I don't recall a time when I preached a series of sermons that, was, uh, that, were, that were better received, and I think our church has just really, really sort of risen to the challenge of Romans 14, and I'm saying this because of the emails and the comments that I've received. I've just been very, very grateful to the church. Uh, the difficulty now is, okay, are we going to practice it? It's one thing to talk about it. Are we going to practice it when the differences come along? All right? That's going to be the real test of Romans 14. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this delightful passage and for 1 Corinthians 8 also. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live this out in a way that glorifies you in a way that expands and contributes to our ministry here. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.